My name is Michael Burden from the uh, University of Oxford's um, Faculty of Music um, and I'm here with um, David Kenley um, from History and uh, and Susan Valadaris from um, English. And we've been discussing um, themes and aspects of um, the exhibition we've been working on called Staging History, um, 1780 to 1840, which is currently on the uh, Bodleian Library. Um, uh, thinking of the, we've been uh, have already um, had some discussion about the Regency. I mean, how does that define theatre during this period? Or well, how do we know, looking at it, that it's Regency? Mm-hmm. Theatre changes considerably during the chronology that we're interested in. So uh, by the 1790s, the theatres are becoming ever bigger, cavernous spaces, and. Uh, Drury Lane and Covent Garden um, can fit as many as 3,600 spectators, which is a lot of people. Um, so we can imagine the kind of distractions that occurred therein, the noise levels, how difficult it was to follow the action on stage. Can we, can we just, just stick with the uh, number? Because the all the theatres by this point are large. The Opera House has been rebuilt. That's also um, mm-hmm. large, 2,900, I think. Yeah. Um, would these would the seating arrangements have passed modern health and safety? I mean, the absolutely not. The <laughs> no. So, so when we, when we say three thousand nine hundred, um, and as let's assuming that three thousand nine hundred people are in the building, what are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know on which nights the theatre would have been sold out, and uh, we sometimes know that a play is a blockbuster success, and we know that as many people as possible made their way into the auditorium. Uh, Pizar is a good example of that. It's the um, opening play for our exhibition. And we know that when that play premiered, there was such demand for that play that ladies lost hats and shoes on their way into the theatre. Yeah. Some people were so intimidated by the crowds, they just decided to not even attempt an entrance. Mm-hmm. Windows were smashed. Um, it was just insane, the kind of frenzy. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that, 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 that's very interesting because what was, what was there in the run-up? Why... And particularly thinking that we're uh, thinking about theatrical change and the Regency. Mm. Um, what was uh, the um, pre-performance information that caused this? Because that's quite astonishing for an opening night. I mean, absolutely. It, it, those sort of things are mostly recorded on on revivals with um, major uh, uh-huh. figures in uh, Mrs. Siddons or whatever. Well, you it's did have really... the star actors of the day for Pizarro. So True, yeah. when uh, um, a theatergoer encountered the first playbill, which was basically an advertisement poster uh, for the performances that were to take place, they would have known that it's this new play called Pizarro um, with new sets and scene designs, new costumes, new mm. music by Michael Kelly, uh, the star actors of the day, John Philip Kemble, Sarah Siddons, all mm. took leading roles. Mm. Um, uh, all, of, all, all of that's true, and in fact, and, and you can see that. But of course, what you just described appears in almost every playbill. <laughs> new costume. I mean, because it, it's. But just, it was it's, also known that it was Sheridan's new play. That's more. Um, yeah, and the playbill doesn't often advertise um, the playwright, but there's no, so true. much gossip mm. surrounding mm. this um, new uh, tragedy that it's well known that it's going to be a new play by Sheridan who is already a successful playwright. Um, he's produced uh, The Rivals, The School for Scandal, um, really very um, well known performances that have enjoyed great success in mm. the theatres. 
And this is his first play since becoming a parliamentarian. So there's interest in what he's going to do with this mm-hmm. play. It's his first tragedy. So I think there is that kind of hype. And you, me- you mentioned gossip. I, mean, I, I can see the hype, and actually, <laughs> and those two things are very interesting. The business, the, the that is being a, being a parliamentarian. But you mentioned the gossip swirling around. Are there any particular stories or anything that come out of those rehearsals, like well, you know, rows over the music or whatever? <laughs> well, I, I think one of the stories that comes to mind immediately is that the rumor was that Sheridan hadn't actually finished penning Act Five of the play. It's all on his too, opening it's all too likely, given a Yeah, <laughs> so he was scribbling away yeah. while the actors were um, already performing the first acts. Um, so, so there are all sorts of interesting stories um, surrounding Pizarro's um, first performances. And actually, on his first nights, it was far too long. Um, so when you attended um, the theatre in this period, you were accustomed to several hours of performance. You'd probably enter the theatre around 6pm and not leave until midnight. But Pizarro alone um, would have run for about five hours on its opening night. And on most occasions, you'd expect to see a main piece, a tragedy or comedy, and then there would be interludes of singing or dancing, and then you'd have an afterpiece. But with Pizarro taking up five hours at Left Room for almost nothing else. And we, and we, and we must record five hours without an interval. Yes. <laughs> and also, this, when you mentioned seating, um, it's mm. worth pointing out that it wouldn't have passed health and safety today um, because the way that the theatre was organised was that you had boxes. These were most expensive seats, favoured by the aristocracy. And then you had seating in the pit, and these were hard benches with no backs to them, and people would really be crammed in very tightly. And then the most dangerous, perhaps, were in the galleries, where often um, it would be standing room only because it'd be so popular. And these were the cheapest seats in the auditorium. That's what made them so popular to a certain extent. And, um, yeah, it was very crowded. We have all sorts of interesting prints where we see people um, provoking fights with each other and um, trying to cross over from one area of the auditorium to another. So um, I think it was quite a rowdy place, the theatre in the that, 18th that and 19th all, I mean, century. That does, that does feed it doesn't into it, doesn't it, about how you... Um, uh, would expect to perform and, mm. how, and how you treat the theatre as a performance space if Absolutely. you have an audience that is essentially rowdy. I mm. mean, there is, there is, there are, I mean, there are comments, aren't there, or mm-hmm. perhaps I can't think of any from this particular period, but certainly um, at the beginning of our period, mm. um, there are remarks by the continental visitors saying mm. the London audience is a listening audience. And there are, and, and, and William Park, the oboist, says, well, you know, um, the audience is now starting to listen to what, we, to mm. what we're playing. But that's only starting. And so with the, the yeah. performers must have been dealing and, with a lot of racket. And when the theatres expand, you see the opposite of that. So you see complaints that these are theatres for um, seers, not for hearers, because mm. it's just so difficult to actually have good acoustics in the space. Mm. And so spectacle um, becomes ever more important um, to the theatrical diet. And you also see an interest in more declamatory styles of acting Mm. so audiences um, are quite distracted by each other Mm. um, when a performance begins so it's difficult for the actors to come on stage um, and know they have to really fight for the audience's attention it's not a kind of decorous occasion Mm. as it is today the lights aren't dimmed and audiences aren't prepared for something to Mm. begin and for them to you know really lend their appreciation to that and the shape of the theatre can even be quite different and it Mm. really is a kind of horseshoe that, that almost means the audience is looking more at itself than yeah. at, uh-huh. um, the stage. You know, yeah. um, Audiences go to be seen as much as to see. Yeah, so there's they're... a spectacle that's working in several directions at once. Yeah. And yeah. when the royal family go to the theatre, then obviously the main attraction is the royal yeah. family, so it's even <laughs> yeah. more difficult, I think, to, um, yeah. to get the attention. The really social spaces yes. where people are meeting and having all kinds of other things on the sidelines, yeah. playing cards or you know, drinking and talking to each other. And yeah, so, so and buy oranges and maybe 
your boxes. Your oranges. Yes. <laughs> yes. Also. Yes. <laughs> but the, I mean, you mentioned the lighting, and of course, one of the um, certainly one of the theatre guys in the seventeen uh, this part of the century, um, uh, Anna Larpent, um, mm. does go along to an opera one night, and she says, you know, it was five hours long. Um, she talks about, I think, about having a headache, but what she's complaining about is that she can't see because the li- there's not enough light and there's and it's just it's all too li- all too large. Mm. And she said, and it's such, the, the the phrasing is something like, "Oh, I just sat there for five hours. I couldn't see. I worked really hard. The mm-hmm. play wasn't that entertaining, and so on." So, but I mm. think that's what's really interesting about our chronology that in 1817 you have the introduction of gaslighting. And that means that you are able to appreciate more nuanced effects and to try to really focus on the expressions of the individual actors in a way that you haven't been able to appreciate before. Mm. And so I think that's that, important I think point. The, yeah, and uh, although I, I would um, I would want to modify that in one oh. in one sense, but because the um, what the gaslight did, of course, um, was uh, it lit people so harshly. It, it was also quite dangerous. Yes, yeah. it was, quite, it was also very <laughs> no, yes, it was absolutely. Very, it was very dangerous. Yeah, but it also yeah. lit them quite harshly, and of course the then. I think at that point it became obvious just how um, uh, dramatic their actions were, and you mentioned, um, you know, recover, uh, um, wanting to use a much more dramatic style mm-hmm. of performance. But I think that once gaslight comes along, of course, that becomes suspicious. You suddenly yeah, it see puts pressure on those acting yes. style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. well, as you say, as you say, it's also um, uh, extremely dangerous. Um, what about processions? I mean, because that's one of the big things that gets added and it, and feeds very much into this. Um, uh, narrative that goes English drama is being ruined by processions and so on. Yes, things that supposedly divert from the literary seriousness of the drama about this visual stuff that's often condemned by certain critics but mm-hmm. is loved by popular audiences who mm. can't get enough of it. Um, so it's that tension between the, the have, spoken and the, and the scene. Yeah. You, you have a deep stage. So we know that for the ovation scene in Coriolanus, when John Philip Campbell performs it in the early 19th century, he has up to 240 supernumeraries on stage. So it's impressive how many people you can actually bring onto the stage. And by 1811, I think you also have elephants performing in the London theatres. Mm. <laughs> so uh, the processions take various different forms. Mm. And it allows for things like, you know, I'm thinking of the um, coronation of George IV, which is restaged at Drury Lane mm-hmm. with Robert Elliston, the manager of the theatre, in the role of George IV, mm-hmm. immediately after the coronation. So even if you, the humble Londoner, weren't able to go to see the coronation procession uh-huh. in actuality, you could get the next best thing, which was uh-huh. Elliston which as the King George IV yes. in the theatre, which is quite a striking moment, I think. Is. And the way in which the theatre is closely allied to current affairs and, 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 and uh, current events. And apparently we can take it one step further because there are also some suggestions that the play The Exile, which had been performed Mm. at the King's Theatre and featured the coronation of Elizabeth Petrovna of Russia, her coronation had taken place in 1742, but the Russians had published this beautiful book of engravings, which was sort of a propaganda attempt of sorts um, to show how this um, coronation had taken place. And it was restaged in 1808 um, in um, in this entertainment called The Exiles. And what happens is that there are some people who suggest that this actually becomes perhaps an inspiration for George IV's own coronation. Mm. So you see yes. this kind of looking back, looking forwards. And well, it's, pretty, I mean, it's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful exhibition item, that, with the um, huge um, coronations. Uh, uh, 
procession mm-hmm. on the big fold out, and that, and of course the um, it's been run across the back of that cabinet, which looks it looks equally um, uh, impressive. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how they actually managed to do the. The, the staging of the length of a procession of this kind, whether they would have performers going around. They, Dublin, they yeah. did. Yeah. They, they did. And in fact, and I, yeah, and I think there are complaints that people that, that people change. Spot the same person spot twice. The same person <laughs> twice. I mean, that, but, the, but it's interesting that the theatres were completely unashamed by this. Um, mm. And um, mm. Garrick writing uh, much earlier, of course, well, uh, writing, um, uh, doing the Shakespeare um, procession, I mean, basically say, well, you know, we did it because it had a procession. It was sort of a, an, a supposedly an effort to restage something that had had been staged or wasn't able to be staged um, uh, because of the flood in Stratford. Yeah. Mm. But actually, it was just an excuse to put all this um, this stuff on stage. Mm. Mm. And because the Shakespearean Jubilee had been rained off, essentially, this is how he was able to achieve such success by having the procession replayed in the theatres. Mm. Moving mm. on to the, um, at least for a while, to the minor theatres or what what are uh, perhaps mm. slightly less charitably called the illegitimate theatres. <laughs> um, the, I mean, this, the, this sort of stuff is is a mainstay of some of the things that they do, isn't it? Um, I mean, the um, uh, the, the uh, Dibden, for example, at the Royal Circus mm. was busy doing um, both processions, but also spectacle. Mm. Um, and what we and. Uh, what we begin to see are works um, attempting to fill these houses without much content. And uh, um, regardless of the narrative about English drama going down the drain because it's got processions in it, which I think we can agree is just a sort of complaint by the playwrights, Mm. um, it's certainly true that uh, for something like the Royal Circus, wanting to uh, make money, wanting to get the audience in, did indeed do spectacle. That was spectacle and nothing else, hence all the riding sequences and all the rest of it, which are very entertaining. And going back to the, the um, points you were making earlier about the um, size of the audience or the makeup of the audience, perhaps is a better way of describing it, um, the the Royal Circus really was uh, av- available, accessed and used by um, the uh, lower, uh, well, so the lower classes, but at least the, the um, uh, lower, the, the the poorer, <laughs> the mm. poorer section of the theatre-going audience, and it often mm. reflects their location as well. Yes. Often south of the river. Yeah. What may be worth underlining is that the reason that we have a distinction between the so-called patent theatres and the minor illegitimate theatres is that in 1737 you have the Licensing Act, and it basically allows Drury Lane and Covent Garden to enjoy a monopoly over the spoken word, the ability to perform comedies and tragedies. King's Theatre becomes a theatre devoted to opera, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it also enjoys patent status. Um, but all the other theatres only have restricted licences. So they have to perform musical burlettas, ballad operas, melodramas. They cannot really go near tragedy and comedy. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they're pushed towards this more spectacular repertoire. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite inventive the way they respond to that. So one of the cabinets that I most enjoy in our exhibition is the Siege of Gibraltar because we Mm. see how Sadler's Wells, a theatre which is located in Islington, so relatively difficult to get to if you're based in central London and also quite dangerous in this time as well. Mm -hmm. So the walk back would have been dark and um, you would have been perhaps um, at danger of being mugged. So um, there are all sorts of um, disadvantages that the theatre has Mm. to try to overcome. But in 1804, Charles Dibden the Younger, who's manager of the theatre, installs a water tank on stage um, using water from the nearby New River. And this tank is able to hold uh, 8,000 cubic feet of water. Mm. Uh, A smaller tank is then placed at the roof of the stage to enable waterfall effects. 
And the Siege of Gibraltar is the first entertainment to really take advantage of this new capacity to stage aquadramas, as they um, were then called. So it's this phenomenal entertainment in so far that it recreates the Siege of Gibraltar, which had been um, successfully won by 1782, I think. Um, and um, it, the British army had really overcome the odds, 60,000 French and Spanish soldiers attacking 7,500 British soldiers, and they came with floating um, batteries, and the British were able to um, overcome them by using red-hot shots, and this scene was recreated for audiences. They used um, model ships. Um, they contracted the same shipwrights who had built ships for the siege to produce replicas for the theater and then contracted boy actors to help sustain that illusion. And mm, yes. it's it's just incredible. The audiences were really fascinated by something they'd never seen the likes of before. Mm. One last thing about the danger, of course, is that the, um, the, the Royal Circus uh, was offering uh, um, accompany uh, people to accompany you to guard you um, from the theatre to the bridge, um, <laughs> and because of the footpads that were around, and the, the Royal mm-hmm. Service, of course, being south of the river, because in Islington, although it had problems, I think it didn't have anything like the problems that were south of that.